Hello, this is Dan Bender, executive producer of the Singles Podcasting Network. Today, I'm excited to present Single Living, a podcast that brings you straight talk on everything that concerns today's singles, including relationships, dating, travel, and financial security. Single Living is hosted by Rich Goss, a well-respected expert in the singles industry. He is the author of eight books on dating and has lectured on the subject in over 50 colleges and universities. Rich is frequently interviewed by the news media, including Oprah, CNN, Fox News, and the Wall Street Journal, to name just a few. And now, here's the host of Single Living, Rich Goss. Nearly 10 million American women are single at age 50. And according to AARP magazine, the 50-plus dating game has never been hotter. But with fewer than two single men for every three single women in the over-50 age group, as well as an ageless difficulty in finding the right match, mature women on the dating scene are having a tough time. My guest today is Catherine Chaddock, co-author of Flings, Frolics, and Forever Afters, A Single Woman's Guide to Romance After 50. Catherine is a writer, professor, two-time divorcee, and mother of 21-year-old twins. Her articles have appeared in Working Woman, Good Housekeeping, Parents, and the Washington Post Sunday Magazine, among others. She is the author of four books on American history. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you. Why did you and your sister decide to write this book? Well, after 50, we both had really um, life-changing experiences, and mine of course, was to get divorced. Hers was the death of her husband unexpectedly. And we started being single ladies after 50, and that was weird and different. And as we started talking... That's pretty tough, isn't it? <laughs> it's tough. It's um, it's just different. It's, yes. it's very um, unsettling because it's not what you expect. Um, it's not something you, you thought about in your mind ever before. And so there's very unsettling quality of what am I doing here? And uh, we started talking about it and talking about that as something that we saw some other women going through. And then we'd see even more other women going through. And we realized, well, demographically, of course, we, you know, we're seeing the baby boomers turn 50 and right. uh, have the same, some of the same states of mine, some that even haven't ever been married. So we thought, you know, there's, there's nothing out there for us in terms of relating to men. Yes. And what is out there seemed to also assume that everybody wanted to capture somebody to go down the aisle with again. And neither of us felt that way, and we started checking it out with others. We want to have guys in our life, but we don't necessarily maybe want to get married again. We're, we're more skeptical about that than ever. We know more. Right. We've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. So <laughs> we, we sort of thought, well, maybe we should do this book. And um, that's how it evolved. I had written other books, but very scholarly, more in my role as a professor. <laughs> right. So this is a fun book then. This is a fun book. This is where I get to get out of my role as a professor and into my role as me. And did you have fun going out and dating and following your own advice? Well, actually, um, while we were writing the book, my sister had just found her Mr. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and how did she find him? Um, going out with friends to a little uh, bar and dance kind of place on a Friday night right. in Colorado with a, you know cowboys yes. around and so forth. And um, 
you know, just happened to uh, meet him, at, you know, in, in the group. And, wow, it, it clicked. He's 15 years younger than she is. Oh, my Which Lord, 15 me. years. Yeah. Very surprising. Yeah. And of course, that's one of the big suggestions I always give women over 50 is uh, go for the young stuff because there's a lot more younger guys out there than older guys. As you point out in your book, for every two single men in America over age 50, there are three single women in that age group. So if women are dating older men, uh, the pickings are pretty slim, aren't they? And it, they are. They are. I mean, we have to at least categorize you know, maybe 10 years younger. Yes. Few people end up with people 15 years younger, but, you know, in, in the group from 1 to 10 years younger, I think at the time I was, made, when I was um, writing the book, I was actually one of the people I was dating was five years younger than me. And so, you know, we can expand. <laughs> right. So both of you advocate going younger rather than older if you're a single woman over 50. Well, consider both. Just enlarge the pool uh, in, in both directions. Well, a lot of the women I talk to that are over 50 tell me not only are there very few men that are out there in their age bracket that are older than they are or their same age, but that a lot of these guys, uh, this is not politically correct to say, but I'll say it anyway, a lot of these guys are really literally leftovers. <laughs> they have a lot of negative qualities to them. A lot of these single guys are alcoholics or have a drug problem or have sexual problems, physical problems, uh, problems with the law, problems with their employment. I mean, a lot of these guys over 50 are a mess, which is not to say that there aren't some great guys out there, but they're in smaller numbers. So a lot of women say, I want to go for the bigger pool of guys. I want to go for the younger guys. Yeah, I, I think a lot of divorced women would say that the man they had married was a mess, too. <laughs> Maybe nothing changes. We did, you know, of the women we interviewed for the book, and we really tried to interview women who had success stories. Yes. The idea of playing frolics and forever afters is to really kind of learn from success. You know, we all can tell downer stories, and believe me, we all do, and the stories of the frogs that never became the princes, but we really tried to talk to successful women, right. and it did seem that, you know, a lot of the success was quickly figuring out the men who just were, as you put it, a mess. Yes. And those usually, of the kinds of things you mentioned, fell into a couple of areas. One was kind of emotionally immature or, or just emotionally unavailable for whatever yes. reason. It might be that they were a recent widow. You know, and they were going to grow out of that, or it might be that they were a bachelor who had never grown out of that by age 55. Right. Another category were men who were financially a mess. Yes. Who had somehow gotten into financial disaster, frankly. Right. Um, and were actually kind of hoping for a woman who could help stabilize them. Exactly. We didn't find quite as many, although certainly some, um, of the either alcoholic drug kind of people or the um, the ones that had the, the real health problems. But I think more common was the financial problems, the sort of the emotionally unstable problems. Well, when I talk to senior citizens, uh, the women who tend to be even over 60 or even older, they say that every man they meet is looking for a nurse and a purse. A nurse with a purse, yeah. Right. And many are. And many of those, like I said, the emotional problem ones are really looking for a psychiatrist with a purse <laughs> as well as a nurse with a purse. And, you know, that is true. I've certainly myself dated one or two of those. But that's just part of the, the thing. You, you, you know when, when things aren't, aren't well. 
right and you move along. Well, and a lot of the guys, of course, that are younger tend to be more attractive than the older guys. Uh, they have a flatter stomach. They have more hair. They're more athletic. Uh, the women tell me they're more fun. A lot of these younger guys uh, really have a lot going for them that uh, often the older guys don't have. Yes, they have more to bring to the table. And frankly, as far as I can tell, um, a woman at 50 or 60 is younger than that man at 50 or 60. The, the, um, the health problems start maybe a little earlier with the, the typical American male. Maybe that's why actuarially they die earlier. Well, exactly. The average man in America, as you know, dies five years earlier than the woman. And so I always recommend to women, if you marry a guy, you want to marry a guy at least five years younger, preferably even younger than that. There you go. Um, I play tennis with a lot of men and a lot of women my age, and the women my age are definitely younger-type tennis players. <laughs> yes, right. They, they, they can cover the court better than the men my age, uh, typically. This is not every single case, of course. Right, there are well, of course. Well, you know, they actually did a study on disparate age relationships in marriage. They did a study in which either the man was 20 years older than his wife or the woman was 20 years older than her husband. So they went both ways, 20 years older, 20 years younger. Interesting what they found in this study is they found that the divorce rate was about 50%, which, of course, by coincidence, is the divorce rate for the entire country, regardless of age. So according to this one study, you have just the same chance of a successful relationship, long-term relationship without divorce, if you marry somebody your own age, or you marry somebody 20 years older than you are, or if you marry somebody 20 years younger than you are. So if that's the case, I always tell the women, why not go for the young, good-looking guys with the hard bodies? Exactly, exactly. And this is why I think a lot of women lie about their ages, which I don't think is a bad thing always, because the number scares people, but the reality is not so scary. The reality is she has energy, she has stuff going for her, she's fun, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then she says, and I'm 60, and it sounds like a downer to a 50-year-old man. But Right. I tell women that every man out there has a number in his brain, and if you're above that number, you're out. Mm-hmm. And, and that number, of course, is your age. And you're right. Women hit 50 or they hit 60, and then uh, millions of men automatically cross them off the potential list of datables. There's just a tremendous ageism in this country, particularly towards women. Now, of course, the men yeah. get discriminated as they get older in the corporate boardroom because as the men get older, it's harder for them to get hired and it's harder for them to move up the corporate ladder. So men get discrim- discriminated against as they get older in the business world. But in the relationship world, women are the ones especially who get discriminated against because most men have that number, that artificial number in their brains, and they automatically exclude any woman who is above that number. Sure, sure. It is amazing, and I um, I am always surprised, pleasantly surprised at myself. I'm 58, and um, since my divorce uh, from my husband, and he was a year younger than I was, yes. in the last five, six years since that divorce, he's the one that's had the two hip replacements. <laughs> <laughs> he's the one that's had the aches and pains and can't right. do certain things like skiing and tennis that he used to do. I'm the one that's playing more tennis than ever, pumping more iron than ever, (laughs) kayaking, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, and I see women like that a lot. The only thing that prevents some women from that is this kind of inertia they get when they hit that a number that they have in their brain and go, oh, well, I'm, I'm 58, you know, I, I'm really not, I'm going to give up, you know, my skis and give up my tennis track and I'm going to, 
you know, just hang out, out with the grandchildren and, and knit them little baby blankets or something. Right. It, it, yes, it, it's so tragic. <laughs> yeah, it's so tragic, Catherine. You've got all these millions of women that are over 40 or, or over 50, and a lot of them are in the prime of their lives. Uh, they're happy. They're together. They're healthy financially and physically, and uh, they have such a terrific package to offer another man, and yet uh, they don't. They just hang around their buddies who tend to be other women and... Uh, you know, maybe they go down to the tennis club, but they really don't meet any men, and their their romantic life is over, and they're just 50 years old. I mean, it's just so tragic, and they may live another 30, 40, 50 years. Oh, seriously. I'm very, you know, definitely, and, and like I say, we tended to interview the women that had gotten past that. Yes. So actually, for the book, we don't emphasize that too much, but we do mention, don't do this, you know, and, and because you do see, I mean, I actually have, women friends that can't travel now because their cats are sick yes <laughs> <laughs> and others can't travel because their grandchildren might need them or they're living with their grandchildren or whatever uh, whatever you know um yes. but I, all those are excuses really women can do way more than they think and our idea was if they saw what these successful women were doing and and kind of this book is not always meant to be a roadmap, although it would look like somewhat of a guidebook, it's also meant to be just motivational. You know, yes. forget the eight steps and just just sort of take it for what it is as a I I think I could get going, you know, kind of book instead sure. of um, doing every single step we suggest, which we do for those women that you know need to follow a plan or they can't get motivated. Um, we've got the plan in there, but you know, for other women, it's just enough to dip into the book, read the experiences of other women, and get motivated. And that is a huge um, need among women over 50. It's just incredible. They did a study for American Demographics magazine where they asked uh, single men and single women, how often do you date? And they came up with the most incredible statistic that 46% of single women in America never date. I don't mean that 46% are between dates or currently not dating. I mean 46% of single women in America have totally given up, which is what you are talking about before. Mm -hmm. They've just decided that they're too old or all the good ones are taken or there's nobody out there for me or you know, I'm just too heavy or whatever it is they decide. They have this negative thinking and they have literally dropped out of the dating pool altogether, 46% of single women. Interestingly enough, what they found about the men was not quite as bad. Only 21% of single men in America have dropped out. So you've got a lot of single women out there that have given up hope of ever finding love and fulfillment. And, you know, frankly, I think that 50 years is just uh, too young of an age to retire to the nursing home. Sure it is. And some people forget, too, that it's not, maybe you don't walk out your door the first day and go on a date. Maybe you go play mixed doubles tennis. Maybe yes. you just do things with a guy who's a friend. Maybe you just um, ask the guy down the street what kind of fertilizer he uses on his lawn. <laughs> you know, whatever. Or yes. maybe you're walking your dog and he's walking his dog. You know, all of these don't have to be romances to be really fun, fulfilling relationships. I, yes. I value some of my guy friends. I value my girlfriends. But I very much value many of my guy friends who I would never feel romantic about, but I have right. a wonderful time with. And can do things with and and so-called date without feeling like I'm dating. <laughs> almost. Yes. But, but that's, you know, a lot of women forget that that's an option too. They don't have to worry about this is a date. What does it mean? What do I wear? What do I... There's <laughs> a lot of good times to be had that are just plain friends getting together. 
Right. <laughs> what would you say, Catherine, are the biggest mistakes that women make concerning relationships after they hit age 50? I think the biggest mistake they make is lack of confidence. Um, it is that sort of over-analyzing the situation and not having the confidence to just say, hey, it's my situation. I do what comes naturally to me. I am over 50. I, I ought to get to be me by now. And um, just let the chips fall where they may and be my natural self and not overstress about what I say, what he says, what I wear, what where we go. And, and you know, I think there's a lot of lack of confidence in that right. overanalyzing situation. What was it he said? Let me call my girlfriend and see if she's ever heard <laughs> that. And I think people do this whether they're online dating, whether they're face-to-face dating, whether they're thinking about dating, um, whether they're thinking about the next-door neighbor as a friend. There's an awful lot of over, you know, over-analyzing uh, male-female relationships. I don't think the men overanalyze. I Definitely think. not. I don't think I don't think a man puts more than five minutes into analyzing his romantic relationships. He either yeah. has a good time or he doesn't, and that's it. And then he walks away. Exactly. We also overanalyze the relationships that don't happen. We don't wait for the relationships <laughs> to happen to start overanalyzing. And I'm right. guilty of this, too. You know, I'm still analyzing one that, that went south a year ago. Right. <laughs> So we are all guilty of that, and yet it's a huge trap if we could, you know, the one thing we have to, you know, try to do more like a man, and there aren't many of those, but the one thing <laughs> is to be able to say, hey, didn't work out, who knows why, or I didn't, maybe didn't wear the right thing that everybody else was wearing, who, who knows why, and move on, you know, in the little ways and in the big ways. Letting go of the past, that's the key. Yeah, yeah, not, not bringing it up in your mind in these tapes we play over and over. And, you know, we're still playing tapes from when we were kids. And, you know, but I was always told you shouldn't do such and such. You know, you right. shouldn't be aggressive. You shouldn't be do not aggressive. Oh, you can. Some people tell me you can call him. No, maybe I shouldn't call him. You know, I mean, by the time you get through that, you're so twisted up in, in knots, you're not even having fun. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's uh, the, one of the observations I have of single people is that too many of them approach dating as a chore. You know, it's a, this unpleasant thing they have to do. And, and how sad because you don't get paid to go out on a date. So if there's not a payoff in money, the payoff, I think, should be in fun. And most people literally don't have fun dating, at least not that first date. Exactly. The people that um, can say to themselves, this is not about a date. This is about having a fun evening. Yes. or a fun afternoon, are much better off, absolutely. The times that I've been able to do that, the times that the women I talk to have been able to do that and put the the date notion out of their mind and just put the fun notion in there, much better off. Much yeah, better I like off. that. We need to probably just drop that word date altogether because most of the single people I talk to that are over 50, you know, they cringe when they hear that word date. You know, it's kind of like a fingernails going down the chalkboard. I mean, it just terrorizes them. And, and maybe if we can look at it as just simply a fun experience and, and don't use that dirty word date, people could actually relax and have a good time. Exactly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and it, re- it really is unnecessary. It formalizes things that don't need to be formalized. You know, labels are always an interesting thing. And the minute you put a label on something, you know, you label something as a romance that's really just a friendship or yes. a friendship that's really a romance or whatever. And then the minute we start with the labels and, and yes. so forth, we're probably in trouble anyway, and we're, we're already overanalyzing by labeling something. 
Overanalyzing and overlabeling. Well, let's yeah. move on to what would you say are the most crucial things that are done by women who are successful in male-female relationships? You know what? The most crucial thing is optimism. Is And that optimism goes to being able to put a smile on your face. It goes to being able to put a um, spring in your step, but it also goes to being able to bounce back when you think things went wrong and so forth. So, you know, optimism among these women is just crucial because the opposite of that is like, oh, my gosh, what could go wrong? Oh, my gosh, he's a tennis teammate's brother. I bet he's a dweeb. You know, <laughs> all this. <laughs> yes. So, you know, I think that, uh, that this kind of optimistic attitude about what will happen not just when you're confronting a man and you know you're confronting a man because you're going to, you know, see him at the class play and he's a single father and you're a single mother, but even when you're doing things with your girlfriends or at work or uh, shopping somewhere or going to a continuing education class or going to your book group, you know, optimism about this is going to be an interesting evening, and even if nobody shows up, I'm going to enjoy the book we're discussing at book club tonight. You know, whatever. Um, is way better and puts you in a better frame of mind to know when things are going well and to bounce back when things aren't going well. It, it's kind of an attitudinal thing, but, you know, it's absolutely crucial to be optimistic through no matter what you think is, is, could go wrong. Now, in your book, Catherine, you talk about specific steps and actions, having a plan. Doesn't that take the romance and spontaneity out of dating if you have that plan all written down? Actually, my ex-husband said that when he um, saw parts of the book on Amazon.com. Yes. <laughs> he said, whoa, what happened to romance when yeah. he emailed me? But um, actually, most of our plan um, of the eight steps, the the guy isn't even in four of the eight steps. Mm-hmm. Much of the plan is kind of getting yourself together. Yes. Getting your your physical you together. Well, well, let's talk about that for a second. How do you get your physical you together? Oh man, you have to analyze what's best about you and absolutely emphasize it at the same time that you get real about what's not best about you and try to do something to de-emphasize it. And, and how do you do that? How do, how, how do you emphasize that your good points and de-emphasize your bad points? Well, we like the idea of peer feedback, um, that you do kind of interact with a, a friend, a trusted friend, and, and kind of help each other in this kind of thing. And um, If one of your bad points is getting down on yourself, you need a friend who's always the one that picks you up. If one of your bad points is that you don't, uh, you dress like you're a 70-year-old grandmother when you're <laughs> just turned 50, Frumpy. then you need a friend who goes shopping with you and is willing to tell you, that's frumpy. You know, yes. and, and so it's not, we really like the idea of when you're kind of working on yourself, a friend is better than, many times, some better than a psychiatrist. Better than the sales lady trying to sell you that frumpy suit, whatever. Right. Um, and, and so, so we do like that, and we like to ask people to think about their inner shell and their outer shell at the same time. That you don't just go, 
well, I've got this, these wrinkles and I've got this pooch and I've you know, and, and try to improve the outside, which is definitely, you know, great to try to improve. But also think about the interview. How interesting are you really? When's the last time you sat down and read a, a really good Sunday paper? When's the last time you sat down and read a really good monthly magazine? Something a little bit, you know, more intellectual than you usually read. Something um, other than TV that, Guide. Yeah, yeah. Maybe this month you should just read it at the New Yorker instead of TV Guide. Just try it one month right. and see how it goes. You know, in other words, it's not just about getting rid of the wrinkles and um, getting fit and thin, which is all wonderful stuff too, but it is also about making yourself a more interesting person. Speaking of, what do you think about things like liposuction and plastic surgery and rhinoplasty? Do you recommend any of that in your book? Um, you know, that we actually uh, didn't particularly recommend it, but we told people to think about it. Do they need a facelift? Do they need this? We certainly don't recommend against it. I, I'm sure that there definitely are people out there that would benefit from whatever, um, you know, facelift, uh, brow lift, uh, liposuction, and there are also people out there that are getting too much of it because they have the money and they can Right. Most so, people would run out of money pretty fast. They're <laughs> very expensive, but um, you, you, you've you got know, to be a multi. You have to be a multimillionaire like Michael Jackson to go through fifty procedures. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's kind of an unusual situation. I, you know, I think people need to to look what they think is their best. And if if you've got a you know drooping eyebrows that are drooping below the brow line and kind of shutting your eyes, and if that's been bugging you now for about three years, and every time you look at a picture of yourself, you go, oh, my God, I look like I have the eyes of a 95-year-old, then save up and get a brow lift and get it pulled up. You know, yes. these procedures are, are not um, six months of recovery anymore. They're you know, pretty, pretty usually done. So, um, you know, if somebody can save the money and do something about something that really bugs them, great. And what about uh, things that you might have left out of the book? If you could do the book all over again, what other issues might you have addressed? You know, one of the things we didn't address that I would have liked to, one of them, um, that I would have liked to address, but I just couldn't get enough a handle on it from the women we were talking to um, who had very different experiences in this was um, the use of Viagra and other enhancements, um, yes. performance enhancers of that type. I couldn't get enough of a, um, I don't know, consistent answer to say anything. You know, I, yes. many women were, you know, very glad that Viagra was there. Yes. Other women, they just didn't like the use of Viagra because it seemed like, a guy was um, almost like doing a, a fake thing in order to have sex with them. Like he, they'd rather have it happen because he adores them so much. Yes. So there's still that, you know, that right. it, and it's that at maybe the age of 60 or 70, it's not just happening to this man because he adores you so much. So really a tough call in, in the non-married set. I think it's the mar older married people, it's a little easier in terms of I know he adores me. We just need this you know, for, you know, performance and, and to be more satisfied. 
Well, well, on that note, Catherine, let's bring the interview to a close. My guest today has been Catherine Chaddock, who is co-author with her sister of Flings, Frolics, and Forever Afters, A Single Woman's Guide to Romance After 50. Single Living is a production of the Singles Podcasting Network in San Rafael, California. If you have any comments or suggestions about single living, feel free to email us at singleliving at singlespodcastingnetwork.com. Thanks for joining us today. Until next time, this is your host, Rich Goss. Thank you.